uh hey dean uh so when you were gone we did an episode uh with i did an episode not you you weren't you were in hawaii i did an episode with john burningham about <laughs> summer camp and it was uh it was a pretty wild episode definitely uh weird we didn't i don't think we talked about communism even once so that was that was wild anyways <laughs> uh it just got some really good feedback on twitter and on facebook i saw two different posts about it this week and i was really excited um that the work that I did with John without you was actually good. It was kind of, kind of affirming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, just uh, send me the paycheck and I'll stay away. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, anyways, uh, I've never met him, but everyone I talk to about him always says really good things. So I guess I trust his judgment. Uh, Carl Aho, uh, do, you, do you know him? Uh, I also know him through the internet. I know him through Kierkegaard stuff in particular. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah, extremely nice person. Also John... from Michigan, apparently, so that's cool. yeah. Uh, John Birmingham knows him, and so does uh, John Heaps, and some other people I know all know him. So he's like a he's a well known person in Christian academic circles. <laughs> Anyways, he said some very positive things about episode fourteen, camping out with John Birmingham, uh, and I want to reiterate that those those things are true, and it's a good episode. <laughs> so you should look, you should go listen to it. Um, uh, we didn't have any new reviews on iTunes, but that was like a very stunning uh, and good review on the social medias. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. That's too bad. Uh, please send us more reviews because that's uh, my favorite part of the podcast. Reading yeah, like, them. literally, we can't do an intro unless you guys send us reviews. So uh, yeah, look at us it... right now. <laughs> this is what you're forced <laughs> to listen to. Make like a second iTunes account. Uh, make another comment. <laughs> <laughs> make a fake name. I don't know. Get your parents to do it. Be like, oh, don't, get don't listen parents. to it. Just do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah good idea get your parents to do it they uh, they'll really like it i think it's definitely good <laughs> for the uh the sort of church mom and dad crowd yeah i think that's right okay cool well dean do you want to do you want to uh explain who's on the podcast today yeah so uh this week we've got daniel camacho a really great guy uh if you don't know him you should uh he writes at a lot of different places uh, but more specifically now he's running at the guardian i guess he's got a regular gig there which is great for him but also great for the guardian uh they're investing in a good young writer uh anyway daniel's a duke divinity grad and he's spent a lot of time thinking and writing about um all the things we care about on this podcast uh race and class and religion and you know, what we should do about all those things and more. Uh, yeah, good guy all around. Um, and we've been hoping to have him on for a long time. So it's cool that uh, it finally panned out. Yeah, I'm super psyched. Uh, if you guys want, you can also follow him on Twitter at Daniel J. Camacho and uh, tweet all your, your good thoughts about him and all the smart things he said. So <laughs> there you go. So let's start off uh, just catching up a little bit. Um, Daniel, what have you been up to? You kind of already were sharing with us a little bit before we started recording, but we'll make you say it again for people who uh, who weren't there. Everyone. Thanks. <laughs> well, first, uh, thank you for having me on on Magnificast. Uh, I think it's a it's a great name for a podcast. I'm a bit, huge fan of Mary's song, you know, her leftist anthem uh, about God opposing the wealthy and siding with the poor. But um, yeah, I... Uh, I've been through a lot of major transitions recently. Um, got married in May. Um, also graduated from from Duke Divinity School. 
Um, and I moved back to Long Island, New York, um, which is where I'm originally from. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot sort of going on in terms of transition. I, I left Duke Divinity School kind of at a, at a very interesting time. Uh, we were being profiled by the New York Times just as I left uh, because of a controversy. Uh, you may have heard about it, about like uh, one of our professors and, and a racial equity training thing. And I, I can I can tell you more later if you want to know. But yeah, so I um, I just finished divinity school and now I'm I'm trying to sort of take some of the extra time that I have to to write more about the topics that I care about. Um, and I'm I'm really thankful the the Guardian just uh, gave me a one year contract to to be a contributing opinion writer for them. Uh, so I'll awesome. try to make the most of it uh, in this this next year uh, to you know to write um, to cover some things. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'm excited to continue to write on these things. That's very cool. I'm excited to see uh, where the rest of your writing goes. I've been reading the columns that you've been doing at The Guardian, and they've been super fun so far. So, yeah, I feel like it's cool to cover that weird beat between religion and politics in the U.S. right now. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's impressive that they're, uh, it seems like they're trying to find people who are obviously capable of saying something cool about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Matt, definitely. What have you been up to? Uh, man, like my summer's basically over. I had like all these research projects planned, but now I'm just uh, I have to prep for class because uh, it's like time. <laughs> um, I've been uh, setting up this class. I've mentioned it before in the podcast. Um, it's like the capstone project for seniors at my school, and um, it's like an interdisciplinary research project. And this year, the topic is uh, mass incarceration so i've been like setting up the syllabus and trying to think through some assignments to get them going on that um i just got <laughs> um i just got uh my copy of the new jim crow all wet with a Lacroix, so that's stupid and i have to, I have to fix that <laughs> uh and, <But> yeah <laughs> so uh, the reading uh new jim croy uh some other like critical essays um uh angela davis um our prison's obsolete and um, some other stuff. I don't know. I'm really excited about it, though. It's been an all-consuming thing in my life for the last like 48 hours. I've been playing the syllabus, so it's been a lot of headspace on that. Yeah, what have you been doing, Dean? <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I am still coming down from the old vacation high, if you like. So yeah, I took this two-week vacation, and then uh, now I've been back back in real life for a week. And uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I'm like two weeks behind on everything still a week later, which is not my favorite place to be. Uh, I have like a bunch of articles I need to be writing and things I should be editing and uh, that's not great. And uh, yeah, I don't know. But that being said, so my brother, uh, who I visited in Hawaii, they're five hours um, behind. And uh, his friend has been like prank calling me in the middle of the night, which is very funny because he's this like uh, 57 year old man who just hangs out and like surfs all day. So uh, that's been, you know, brightening my day, I guess, getting these, uh, <laughs> these calls in the middle of the night from, like, this 57-year-old guy pretending to be a young lady uh, looking for Dean Della. So, yeah, you know, little little bright spots, I guess. Um, so that's cool. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. I wish that, uh, like, all humans, uh, I wish that I didn't have to work for for money or whatever but i do and i'm trying not to uh get stuck in like the vortex that is uh you know being on vacation and uh feeling like i should never work again so warding off those revolutionary impulses are very very hard right now 
Yeah, man. That's high. Waiting for the fully uh, automated uh, luxury communism to kick in. Yeah, that's in. right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, with vacations all the time. Just always on vacation. <laughs> that sounds like a very good uh, a very good system. I would like to sign up for that <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, bring it up at your next uh, DSA meeting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're like a... <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah, so uh, last week on the podcast, we had this conversation with Drew Ventland about uh, the Socials in 2017 conference in Chicago. And uh, I don't know if you were familiar with that at all, Daniel. Uh, we weren't until we saw it on the internet and then talked to Drew about it. Um, but it got us thinking about, I don't know, taking stock of what Christianity in America is up to in 2017. Um, so you've been writing a lot about that, Daniel, American Christianity in uh, the last year or so. and what's going on with it, what's not going on with it. And yeah, we figured we'd chat with you a little bit about it. So there are a few columns that I'd like to talk to you about, but uh, I figured we might as well talk about the one that you just wrote um, that came out a couple days ago about uh, Donald Trump and white evangelicalism. Um, yeah, maybe for people who haven't read it, could you just give us like an elevator pitch of what you were after in the article? Sure, yeah. So with the recent piece that I wrote, um, it, it was actually sparked by uh, a picture that was circulating in which Donald Trump is uh, surrounded by a prayer circle in the Oval, Oval Office. And this was, uh, you know, it caused quite a stir because um, basically this is uh, happening simultaneously while Republicans are, are trying to cut Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Um, and all of their proposals are basically horrible. Um, going to hurt working class people, uh, going to leave uh, millions of people uninsured. And so, and then you have here a group of evangelical leaders that are praying for Donald Trump. Uh, at least that's sort of how it came across. And so I decided to um, kind of cover that. Um, there was even a press conference um, uh, where uh, uh, um, Huckabee was saying that uh, Donald Trump prays all the time, uh, that he, this is sort of a regular occurrence. He has a group that he meets with every week. And to be fair, that's something that Obama did before as well, I think. So, um, but the controversy actually has to do with the, uh, how much uh, Trump has really uh, anchored himself uh, with the evangelical support, uh, even though it is completely clear that Donald Trump has no sort of genuine, very genuine faith, very little sincere faith or morality, in, uh, you know, in general. Uh, and so, um, but still, he he's had uh, he got eighty percent, eighty to eighty-one percent of the evangelical vote. And of all the groups, and these are, I, I keep reading the polls that come out from Pew Research that show sort of where his approval ratings are uh, amongst different religious groups, and uh, white evangelicals specifically are usually always the highest in terms of uh, continuing to support and, and, and approve of his presidency. Um, so I was I was covering I was covering that and basically trying to understand or trying to to articulate um, you know why is it that this shouldn't be a surprise um, that this is where evangelicalism at least a, a large swath of it has led to um, and I think if we look back I, I think I don't think it's a surprise actually. Uh, cool. Well, that gives us a good place to get started. I think. Um, well, maybe we can just start talking about like what evangelicalism at its is at its base. Like whenever I think of evangelicalism, I think of uh, things like the moral majority, um, 
but what that means or like how that plays out at least it, it seems like it's sort of like a politics of resentment it's about like uh you know like hating the right people making sure they don't win and uh like still appealing to some kind of like vague moral principle um so i don't know what what's like at the base of those types of evangelical politics yeah what's striking about that specific point about um even the language of moral majority and how uh, that was sort of one of the major the first groups to really spearhead the religious right the rise of the religious right um to sort of try to line that up this idea of of this christian right representing kind of good morality you know a support for all life trying to to line that up um and make that uh, connect with Trump and his policies and his personal life. There's a huge disconnect. And I think that's what people are starting to see more and more or people are noticing. Um, I think that disconnect has always existed in the sense that uh, these this politics of you know pro-life has always been very shallow because it's sort of it's lashed on to certain cultural issues like abortion, but has really neglected or or supported what I would consider to be very regressive approaches to poverty to the economy. And so right now with the figure of Trump, it's just become fully transparent because of the person that he is, um, that he sort of has has brought the 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 ethics or morality of sort of of the office or of politics general so low and yet evangelicals have continued to support him and like one one uh, statistic that i cited um in my article in my that piece in the guardian was coming from a book uh, by robert jones um the book is called the end of white christian america and i actually really recommend that book i've been working through it um and one of the statistics that he shows is that in in 2016, uh, white evangelicals went from being the least likely to the most likely group to agree that a candidate's personal mor- immorality or morality has no bearing on their public office performance. Um, and so, they, you know, evangelicals has got, have gone from saying that morality really matters, personal character matters, to the to the to the point where um, they're the group that thinks it doesn't matter, <laughs> like more personal morality doesn't matter, character doesn't matter. Um, and so, in a sense, it's clear that um, whatever you think or whatever we think about the religious right project, uh, the political project, in a, in, in a way, it, ha- it has really sold its soul, even on its own terms. So this is very important to understand that there's there's all amounts of critiques that we can mount on on why the religious right is is sort of a bad, it's, it's a problematic uh, political strategy or, or project that failed to begin with. but. What, it, what what we're seeing now is that it's starting to really come apart on its own terms, that it was sort of supposed to be a movement um, that stood for morality, including personal morality. Um, and now it's sort of completely unraveled and shown itself to be maybe what it always has been. I don't know. But at least with Trump, it's really that the, these inner contradictions are, are coming to light. Um, yeah. So I feel like it's interesting to uh, trace some of the stuff about Christianity in America after the Trump election, because immediately after that election, there were a lot of people kind of, um, I don't know, racing to see how they could uh, expiate evangelicalism from its support of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, so the question was like, well, but but what really is an evangelical or, uh, 
you know, not all evangelicals support Donald Trump. There are a lot of progressive evangelicals, etc. But um, I think, you know, like you're right to know, uh, however we seem to define it, it does seem pretty clear that no matter how you want to put it together, the majority of evangelicals don't seem to be that worried about it. Um, and why do you think that is? Like, is there something just, uh, um, like, like what's the reactionary politics that evangelicalism is, um, inheriting or carrying on, uh, specifically as evangelicalism? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that, um, something that part of the problem is, is not just conservative evangelicalism, but I actually think it's, the issue is really, modern Christianity, the way that it's functioned for the past 500 years. Um, I think if we look at it from that vantage point, from some of a very large, um, if we zoom out, we will see that Christianity came to the Americas supporting slavery, supporting the appropriation of, of Native people's lands. It came justifying all sorts of atrocities. Um, and it was very much tied to uh, the white male propertied body. It was tied to a particular kind of ideal of humanity. Um, and so when, once we get to uh, conservative evangelicalism and sort of this manifestation, uh, we have to remember that also there were a number of, of mainliners that also voted for Trump. I forgot, I don't know what the statistic is, but I was reading one of the last polls about uh, his approval ratings, and there were still a number of mainliners. I think it might have been slightly over 50% um, as, as, as late as April that were still approving of his, um, of his presidency. And so I think the problem is, is really... Uh, is tied to Christian, American Christianity in general. It's not just conservative evangelicalism, but conservative evangelicalism basically highlights or accentuates what is this larger problem. The larger problem is the way in which Christianity has sided with whiteness and has sided with capital, has sided with, with uh, this, this civilization, civilizing project. Um, so that um, it, makes, it makes, to me, from that vantage point, if you think about what Christianity has done for the past uh, hundreds of years, it totally makes sense for Trump, for Christians to get behind a message that is against foreigners who are who are brown, um, who are not white. Um, it, it makes sense to get behind somebody who is trying to support uh, the, the wealthiest people and not the most vulnerable. Um, so I think we 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 fool us our, we fool ourselves or we kid ourselves if we think that this is an anomaly or if this is sort of only a problem as endemic of, of, of evangelicalism. Um, with that said, I think evangelicalism is just sort of it's that it's that part of that segment of Christianity which just unabashedly has fully embraced that project, that kind of project in one of its most explicit forms today. Um, and so I don't yeah, I don't think it's uh, salvageable. Like to go to what Dean, Dean, um, what you're, what you're saying. I don't, I don't think um, even. I mean, we can go on and on, but I don't think it's a, it's a project um, or it's an idea, no matter how you define it. Um, there's the, there's that old, tra the old definition that was given that evangelicalism is, um, it's four things that it's basically uh, biblicism, uh, crucicentrism, uh, uh, conversionism and activism. And I mean, that's sort of, that's one way to define evangelicalism, evangelicalism around beliefs. Um, but there are, there are other ways to, um, you can define it in terms of 
uh, political, how it politically rose in the 70s and 80s as, as the religious right. Um, so whether you look at it sort of sociologically, politically, or in terms of theological beliefs, like the, these, this, this group has basically tried to line up uh, conservative theological beliefs and conservative uh, political activism. And those things have really come together in a way that when you have progressive evangelicals or, or more moderate evangelicals who disagree, they, they get shunned and they are very much on the fringe. Like look at somebody like Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention that to me, he, he's still super conservative, but within evangelicalism, he's more of a moderate because he doesn't think it's like awesome to deport millions of people or, and he, he thinks you shouldn't, you know, he's not a Trump supporter. He's, he, he's vocally criticized Trump, but then he came he came under a lot of fire. So even with more moderate um, evangelicals, you come, you come under fire and you get criticized by what has become this larger consensus. Cool. Yeah. Um, man, I think, uh, Locating that that real like colonialist past uh, within evangelicalism and American Christianity at large is like a really helpful move just to kind of understand like where some of this is coming from. That it's not it's not out of nowhere, right? That like uh, that Trump isn't like the isn't like that root the root problem. He's kind of like the symptom of a larger issue, kind of spinning and spiraling out of control. And now now with Trump, you see it being like way more um, like way more public, way way more obvious. Um, those things that were maybe uh, more in the dark for a majority of people are now kind of brought to light. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, and, and that you said that evangelicalism isn't nef- necessarily salvageable is something that I think resonates with me a lot. Um, it doesn't seem like it's salvageable and it doesn't seem like it should be something we want to salvage uh, at the same time. I mean, it just has such, it has like that, that terrible history on the back end that uh, we need to bring to light and kind of come to terms with and deal with in some way and maybe letting it die is that way. Um, but there are people that do find that somehow like good or necessary to salvage it. I, I was thinking like, um, I don't know, there's like a, g- a gazillion Facebook groups about it. I don't know. One, one that I see one of my friends posting about all the time is called evangelicals for social action or evangelicals against Trump and all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know. What would you say to those people that uh, like those groups that think that there's something worth saving? Like, how would you persuade them otherwise? Or like, what kind of critique would you give? Well, I would I would definitely I respect their um, I would respect their their belief or their commitment to kind of to reform evangelicalism and to change it. I still I have many friends who I think consider themselves evangelical or very much part of that world. And uh, completely hate Trump and hate the direction that the church and uh, their churches are going in. Um, and so I, it's, it's something that is, is close to me. And for me, I also like, I spent a lot of time within evangelicalism. Um, I, I went to an evangelical school, Calvin college. Um, and I, even before that I was what you would call a young, restless and reformed. It's <laughs> like, you know, conservative Calvinist. I, I was a huge fan of John Piper, would, was reading John Piper, handing out tracts awesome. in high yeah. school. And <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, there was a, I, I was very much in that orbit. Um, and so I think I can relate to people who start, who are within the larger orbit of evangelicalism and want to change things. And it comes from a good place. For me, I think the my judgment or my sort of my interpretation comes from the standpoint that I've just seen what has consistently done to people and what it has done politically. 
And based in, um, based in my judgment on its actions and its record, I just don't think, I, and also just demographic, I don't see how it will change. For me, it's very important um, to have a material analysis as well of evangelicalism. I think that's something for me that's developed much later. That So like I, I mentioned the definition earlier of uh, of evangelicalism based on its beliefs, you know, but there's another analysis to have of, of its funding streams. Um, yeah. How it's how it's funded. It's it's major institutions, places like you know Southern Baptist Seminary, um, the Gospel Coalition, uh, sort of naming major institutions that have a lot of influence and have a lot of money. Um, I was in I mean, Grand Rapids is one of those places that um, you know it's a sort of a little Christian mecca, a little a little oh, yeah. part of sort of one of the major cities of 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 American American Christendom and. Um, you know, now we have Betsy DeVos, who's Secretary of Education. Right. But what's funny is, like, I when I was in Grand Rapids, I I knew about the the DeVos family and the Prince family, which she, she's originally from. And you know, they have close ties to Calvin, and they're very much in, influential in the, that whole sort of part of West Michigan and beyond. And and I, and, and now we're, we're seeing at the national level what sort of some major evangelicals, movers and shakers have been doing behind the scenes for a long time. Sort of the politics they espouse, private privatization, um, and also like very much reactionary culturally. Like she wants to. The latest thing that I heard is that she wants to interview men's rights groups yeah. and people who really question campus rape, uh, the campus rape culture. And so this is this is going to be a step backwards, I think, for you know yeah. higher education, for really um, for feminism, for for inclusion in in, in campuses and in, in higher ed. And but I like these are the you have to also keep in mind that these are not just people that um, are on the fringe or they're sort of on the outskirts of evangelicalism. But some of these people are the biggest bank rollers. Yeah. They are the yeah. funders of evangelical institutions and programs. And so. When you have, I think, a material analysis of evangelicalism, it helps to then sort of see, okay, like, how is it actually constrained? Because I know plenty of good people who in evangelical churches or, or organizations, and they are handcuffed. They are handcuffed, and they, they will let me know. They will say, like, I, I support gay marriage, or I support XYZ issue, but I can't write about it. I can't publicly share it uh, because of the donors who... And yeah. so... Um, that is part until uh, unless um, that's why I don't see a future for evangelicalism being being salvaged or 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 changing course uh, because of just the whole power structure. If you take into account the funding streams, the institutions, and along just with the major grassroots supports, numerically, I think they just outnumber uh, the smaller groups that are more moderate or progressive. And so when you take all that into account, I don't see a future in which, the mainstream of evangelicalism will be uh, progressive or will support uh, very right. progressive policies. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Calvin. I was up there a few weeks ago for a conference that the Consortium for Christian Universities uh, put on. And uh, it was all, it all took place in um, the Prince Conference Center. <laughs> and right, which is right next to the DeVos Communication Building. 
so it was like it was like the most ironic thing sitting in a room full of CCCU faculty and like administrators and then telling us about what education is like in 2017 and like but no one mentioned that we're sitting in a room named after the Prince family <laughs> so it was just like this huge like elephant in the room that they I guess they just like couldn't talk about they they felt kind of constrained I think um <laughs> There's also, this is unrelated, but wild enough, there is a classroom in the DeVos building that's sponsored by Zondervan Publishing, which is just like, uh, I I mean, like, it's, um, okay, talk about a material analysis of evangelicalism, like, it's all right there (laughs) in that building. It's like, that's who, that's who funds it. (laughs) Zondervan and the DeVos family, it's all them. (laughs) Well, uh, that's, that's like a pretty helpful uh, way to get started, I guess, talking about this. I, I wonder, though, like, um... Okay, so there's like definitely like the material aside, material side of evangelicalism. Like, the, there's lots of money to be made there, and there's lots of money to keep it going. But I wonder, like, for the like the the regular folks that are a part of it. Like, my my I, I had dinner with some friends last night who are uh, extremely evangelical, <laughs> and like, there's something about it that they find valuable. And I don't think it's like. I don't think it's something that's necessarily like theologically grounded, but more affective. Like they find some type of like feeling within evangelicalism that keeps them going back to it. Um, I don't know. So, so do you think that there is like an affect or desire in evangelicalism that, uh, that keeps it going for people who aren't necessarily invested in it materially? I don't, I don't know. I'm just thinking of like, um, like the droves of kids at summer camp who like uh, who feel compelled to go to altar calls or people who give like lots of money to evangelical churches for seemingly no material reason. I don't know. What what do you think? Yeah, I think that um, there can definitely be multiple factors. Um, and even when I think about my own journey um, in evangelicalism, I think there there's an attraction to a sense of community um, and to sort of a coherent having a coherent worldview that uh, tries to make sense and obviously I don't I look back and I don't I don't see the way I don't look at the world the same way but for a certain period in my life it was something that was it was a very powerful framework um, to make sense of the world um, uh, about sort of what's wrong with America and yeah. what uh, we need to do but in that also this this high this this emphasis on on, pers- on piety and this emphasis on relationships and community and and multiplying churches and and church planting and 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 there was there there was some creative impulses there and so I don't want to write off I think you're right to point out those things that those things are real and it's not to write off um, you know any any positive experiences or community that people may find um, but then the, th- the way that things are framed and then also like you you have you have that side of things, sort of the relationships, the community that, that are the communities that are formed, but then you have the sort of underside or what the the aftermath when you are deemed to be not of the fold or when you cross a yeah. line. And then, you know, I've had friends call me sometimes and say, hey, I'm just calling you to tell you that I think you're a heretic, you know, and I, <laughs> I want to pray for you, you know, and I'm like, oh, I really appreciate, you know, that you care for me so much that you want your <laughs> thing me burning in hell and you want to talk but you see what happens like it, it sort of it, it gets to that point where and and evangelicalism is always it's written into its dna that it always has this policing function yeah and you just saw that with eugene peterson where yeah eugene you know eugene peterson was a very famous author christian author writer of the of the of the message bible um he came out and in an interview you know sort of like 
he seemingly sort of he supported gay marriage and everything, but then he 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 stepped back and he backtracked after receiving intense criticisms from uh, from evangelicals and specifically like I think it was Lifeway books the yeah. the book chain you know threatened him and so that's a perfect picture of sort of like what I'm trying to articulate in the sense of how the how the material a material analysis of sort of the institutions and how evangelicalism works, how it sort of conflates also with the with, with the personal the personal experiences and sort of the way the community is built and the policing function. Because there you have somebody who's like everybody loves him, he's really great, comes out he comes out to support a progressive cause or to support gay people. And that for evangelicalism, that's beyond the pale. Right. Um, even Russell Moore went after him. So <laughs> I think calling it a policing function is, is is such a good descriptor because I think that is part of what people really like about evangelicalism is it's a coherent worldview where they can they can kind of engage in protecting the purity of that worldview against other people. I think uh, that is something that appeals to people, <laughs> you know, like for yeah. for the worse, like it empowers them to say someone else is wrong and to hold like a strong sort of understanding of what's right in opposition, and that's um, that's a thing that people like in my experience. Yeah, it seems to feed into to what's going on in uh, evangelicalism in general in the United States as a policing function, because uh, the right is nothing if not, uh, you know, very pro-police. I mean, uh, what passes as the American left is also very pro-police, but in particular, uh, that's what the right's all about, law and order. You know, you gotta got to make sure everything is is uh, ordered properly, and that's a very evangelical kind of uh, thing, or at least it maps pretty comfortably on uh, sort of back and forth. It makes sense. So even if all the uh, uh, moral contradictions and gymnastics are involved, uh, at the end of the day, there's this structural policing principle that kind of makes it easy for them to be bedfellows or something like that. Yeah, and and it's usually what what is being, like when you look at that police function, that what well, I guess what I'm calling I haven't written about this what I'm calling this police function within evangelicalism always we have to pay attention to like what is being protected and yeah. what is really what are what, what's at stake and what you notice is that uh, there are there are a number of things that are not being protected whether it be immigrants or like women's rights and other things but like there there are certain lines that have been drawn and and the more that you look at you see that it's it's highly racialized it's highly gendered. It's very much uh, also capitalist. It's it's sort of uh, tied to a certain idea of the economy. And so you, you can't you can't be a socialist. You can't be a feminist. You can't be gay. And and I think there and and be an evangelical. Uh, well, maybe uh, maybe one thing we could do is um, okay, like evangelicalism, bad news on the whole. I think uh, maybe maybe not everyone wants to put it that strongly, but it feels like right now, as it's presently manifested in the U.S., demographically, evangelicalism seems to be a, a force for the worse, I guess. Um, and not just evangelicalism, like <clears throat> even my own tradition, the Catholic Church, uh, was very ambivalent, like surprisingly ambivalent about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, like even our bishops are... Uh, sort of hit or miss like some of them are good <laughs> we need pope we need pope francis to make more appointments and to make them very quickly before as yeah, long that's as right. like <laughs> i don't know how many years he's uh, he has left but he needs to make all those appointments really fast yeah i know i know i hear you but the worst part of it is even when uh the bishops are saying something uh 
American Catholicism doesn't follow its bishops very closely. It's not like other parts of the world. Um, you know, they've consistently, uh, to their credit, um, been coming out against uh, all the Republican health care reforms, like almost unanimously as a group. Even the most conservative bishops are willing to go that far with it. And it's like, well, uh, that doesn't seem to be reflected in the pews. So I don't know. There's something very, uh, very bad about Christianity in general, as opposed to not just evangelicals in America. But... All that being said, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the work that you've done, um, Daniel, to kind of uh, make a contribution to pushing Christianity further left um, in the U.S. and, you know, working out what that might mean. So you've got a couple of pieces um, scattered around the Internet where you do a good job at this, I think. Um, I think, like, uh, there's all this talk about the religious left or building a religious left, um, and I find that somewhat encouraging, but also like very troubling specifically because what people often mean when they talk about a religious left is specifically Christians and specifically the democratic party. Um, so you wrote a pretty good piece a while back talking about how, uh, the democratic party isn't the party of God. Um, which I think is like exactly how it should be said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that? Like, obviously we super agree. The democratic party is uh, <laughs> not the party of God. Um, but, uh, yeah. What compelled you to say that? And why do you think it needs to be said? Yeah. So that, um, I was wrote that piece in religion dispatches and that was during the primaries, um, when, uh, Hillary was running versus Bernie. Um, and there was a lot of talk about, um, and there's still a lot of debate about the the place for religion and Christianity in the Democratic Party, and sort of if if there is this powerful religious right and this powerful evangelical bloc that is supporting Trump, where are the progressive you know Christians and progressive religious folks? Um, I think that something that I try to point out um, is is there's there's a lot of problems to talking about the religious left or the Christian left. And part of it is because the the term becomes incoherent um, when it's try when it, when people try to use it in a way that is is an alternative or it's sort of yeah it's a it's a mirror of the religious right itself. So people imagine okay people see there's a religious right and then they ch- try to imagine well there has to be an op- equal and opposite force <laughs> called yeah, the religious yeah, yeah. left. And so if 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 there's a force that is sort of unified around like issues like abortion and prayers in school and they support Republicans and there's this other group that is like all pro-choice and all for like you know secularism and all for it's good. and what you realize is that actually the the mainline Protestants and and folks that I guess would consider themselves religious liberal are not as unified politically around sort of a project in the way that the religious right is um, and and so we and we can I mean there are, historians can probably I don't know write they, and they need to write books because I've been looking and I haven't been finding anything <laughs> uh, they need to write <laughs> books about what you know why is it why is it that that what is that what is that difference what why is it that the religious left or these progressive groups haven't sort of coalesced in the way? I, I think there's different factors. I think one um, has to be with uh, the numbers, which I mentioned. There just aren't as many. But the other thing has to do with the meaning of the word left and progressive. So part of the problem is, like, when people talk about religious uh, liberals or progressives, they usually mean anybody who's not a Republican. And so uh, de facto, it's like, oh, you're 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 a Democrat. Like that, that's what it, that's what it must mean. Um, when in reality, like when I think of a religious left or a Christian left, like, and I, th- I think what's needed is uh, actually a coherent um, political strategy and kind of commitment. 
and what I would call leftist commitments uh, to a certain a certain vision of the economy, a certain vision of democracy, um, a certain vision of of, of rights. And, and so I. Um, the, the problem is that when people think of the left, it's also people conflate two different things. Um, they conflate they conflate religious liberalism with political liberalism or like and, and you can see how this is so confusing because like in a way to be politically liberal is to be in the in the popular terminology that we use in America and to be conservative, because like if you're actually classically liberal, that means you're like you're like capitalist. <laughs> and and yeah. that would be your super and, and so you would be you know you would be conservative you would be both the Republican and Democratic Party. Um, but if you look back, like somebody like say like uh, if you look at a situation like in Germany, Karl Barth, who's a very fam famous uh, Swiss Reform theologian, he he vehemently opposed his uh, liberal professors. Uh, and these were professors who were theologically liberal in Germany, you know, that were known for kind of higher criticism of the Bible, et cetera, and sort of historical historical takes on, on the life of Jesus. Um, and he came into sharp disagreement over the war, over World War One, and then over what eventually became the Reich Church. And there you have... There you have plenty of re religious, I guess what you could call theological liberals or like or Christian Christian liberals, but they were like also oh, Nazis. So, <laughs> so you know they're like they could talk to you about higher criticism and they could talk you talk talk to you about what they thought about Jewish people and it's like okay and and that that goes to show you how incoherent the term becomes because like people conflate theological liberalism with political liberalisms or with political leftism. And I think that we need to sort of disentangle all of that and to realize, okay, you can actually have a number of theological beliefs and they can be wedded to also a number of political projects. Like you can be, there are some more conservative theological folks. And I think Pope Francis is one of them who I think is more left on economic issues than most, than a lot of Christians here in the States. Yeah, that's um, right. And and so I think we that's why there's such a problem with writing about and thinking about the religious left is that we try to imagine it as this equal and opposite force to what the religious right is. And it, and it never was that. And then it's also clouds like how we think about politics. Um, that's uh, an incredibly well put uh, statement, I think. Uh, a minute ago, though, you were saying that, like, there's 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 no one like articulating these like sort of christian left ideas about economics or i don't know any other any other sort of political issue i i wonder like how would you how would you suggest christians start articulating those things or like i mean are are you do you want to write a manifesto will you write a manifesto uh, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of just lays these things out for us uh I, I don't know how can how can we start to have these conversations about what like a christian left politics looks like in terms and and like in conjunction with a, a a left theology or something. Yeah, and I think um, I, I I also want to be careful and not not say that there there isn't any there are definitely lots of people I think thinking about and even writing about uh, the relationship between Christianity and the and the left and left politics. I think what I was trying to say, and I probably exaggerated my point, is that. There needs to be a historical accounting of how the the power dynamic between the religious right and and um, progressive progressive Christians or liberal Christians, and why is it that this group sort of became so much more powerful? Um, I think that some people have alluded to it, but when you when you look up books, like there's a ton of books on the religious right, 
and the rise of like fundamentalism or evangelicalism, the moral majority, there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of articles, and I think there's a lot of people talking about the religious left. When you when you actually look for research on like what does that mean, then you realize like it, it's like it, it becomes incoherent because like there isn't something, there isn't this phenomena. But there are, and also clarify, there are scholars and there are practitioners and there are people who I think are are thinking about Christianity and and progressive and left politics. Like one example that I'll give is is uh, Heath Carter. Um, who he wrote this book called Union Made, which I just uh, finished reading uh, not not too long ago, and it's a fantastic book. It's about uh, basically late 19th, early 20th century Christians in Chicago uh, responding to sort of the rise of the of the Gilded Age or responding to industrial industrialization. And what you have, what he tries to show, is that before you had the social gospel. Um, which was a which was sort of I guess if 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 the United States had a Christian left, it, it, <laughs> if it's ever had a Christian left, I think the social gospel and and I put I put King in that group too. Interesting, I I put Martin Luther King Jr. within that group of sort of as an extension of the of, of the social gospel and a, a variation, but also as part of that group. There there it, that that group was the Christian left, but I think what Heath Carter tries to show is that before we get somebody like Walter Rauschenbusch and we get sort of institutionalized forms of the social gospel, there were Christian, there were grassroots Christians and some of them not even, not even fully, they're not like, I guess, what you call orthodox Christians. They, they were heterodox. They believed that they weren't necessarily tied to an institutional church. There were a lot of workers in Chicago who were really agitated and who were very much trying to call out the church for its for the way that had wedded itself to capital, to the way that has wedded itself to wealth, um, and it's, it's just fascinating. So, like, I think, I think, I think there's 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 stuff out there. I mean, somebody else that I've, I've been reading about is Norman Thomas. Um, Norman Thomas was uh, one of the presidential candidates for the Socialist Party of America multiple times. He's kind of he was kind of the successor to Eugene Debs, who's one of the most famous socialists in the United States. Um, and he was a Presbyterian minister for a long time in in, in New York City, uh, specifically East Harlem. And uh, and Martin Luther King Jr. called him the most the the bravest man that I ever met. Um, he actually wrote an article, the bravest man that I ever met. So there is like there actually is a tradition, I would say. There is a tradition of Christians who are left. Um, but it's been it hasn't been written about as much. I don't think it's been covered as much. I'm thinking about I mean, Heath Carter's one person, uh, Gary Dorian, who teaches at Union, I think is somebody else who really covers uh, liberal pro Protestantism and the social gospel really well. Um, but yeah, there there um, there there isn't um, there needs to be more, I think, coverage of sort of these figures, because I think most like if you speak to the average Christian, they don't even know that there used to be a considerable amount of Christian socialists in this country. Yeah. Again, yeah, that's right. It's crazy, too. Um, in the Catholic Church, we have a kind of weird uh, relationship to the left around the whole world, but in the United States, especially uh, because what you what you get is uh Either Catholics that are, like, uh, very performatively loud, uh, like the Barrigan Brothers or something, you know, running around uh, protesting the war and, like, spilling their blood all over weapons and stuff, and, like, that is very cool. Uh, but it's not tied to any kind of real, um, like, on-the-ground party movement. Like, that works if you're, like, a crazy, awesome, like, Jesuit priest or something. But if you're, like, a normal average person, probably you're not going to, like, 
you know, break into, uh, you know, Vietnam draft records and, like, burn them with homemade napalm in the street. Like, that's not a thing that's on your radar. But maybe you would, like, think <laughs> about joining a party or something. Um, it's funny because uh, I always think of one of my favorite examples um, to articulate how weird the Christian left is, is this uh, woman named Diane Druffenbrock. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was a Catholic nun. Um, she died, I don't know, four or five years ago. Um, but she was the vice presidential candidate, um, for the Socialist Party in the United States, um, a long time ago. Uh, but she was a nun, which is so crazy and awesome. Uh, and it's like, what, how do people not know that there was a nun who ran as the vice presidential, uh, nominee of the Socialist Party USA? So, yeah, I think you're right that I think a lot of it probably has to do with just total underexposure, you know, like everybody is obsessed with articulating, um, the conditions for the rise of uh, these reactionary politics, and that's like important work. But uh, it would it would really help to get some uh, some some good press for like what has already happened, so we don't have to like reinvent the wheel or feel like we're reinventing the wheel or ask these questions of like where's the religious left? Because uh, if you talk to like any old Catholics who like lived through the '60s in the U.S. or Canada, like the religious left is there. They're all just like very old and very smart. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's definitely, that, that's the thing. If you look at the history of the United States and even Canada, I think there are examples of Christians with with leftist commitments and who are involved in the civil rights movement, who are involved in anti-war activism. Um, you think of many figures. I mean, some of the most famous that people talk about and read about, like Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day. Um, the issue is that I think, and this is something that I've written about, I think that a certain kind of political realism has plagued uh, liberal Christians um, or left-leaning Christians in the U.S., broadly speaking. And so that realism, that political realism allows them to, you know, they can quote King, they can quote Dorothy Day, they can quote the—maybe they can even quote the Berrigan brothers, but uh, they cannot sort of— Commit them to commit themselves to thinking that that kind of politics is viable or possible today. They don't think that a commitment to socialism or a commitment to peace, like that, it's just not. They're like they don't think it works. You know, there's a certain kind of political realism that has come to really has taken a really strong hold within uh, Christians' imagination, and so um, they, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people who say like I believe all that stuff. It's great. Like I believe that. I, I, they can affirm peace, they can affirm better economics, but when it comes to actual electoral politics or when it comes to political figures and politics, like they don't, they don't, they think like they take a more centrist standpoint. Yeah, you you wrote a little bit about that in a column about Barack Obama's uh, political imagination, and I thought that was very well done. You traced it to uh, Niebuhr, you know, one of the sort of political and theological realists uh, par excellence, I guess, on purpose, you know, like he's not no secrets about it. That's what he thinks you ought to do and think, etc. Um, and uh, in that article, you juxtaposed uh, Obama's political theology with both Martin Luther King Jr. and then also uh, James Cone, who you've spent a lot of time um, reading and and promoting, etc. Uh, what what do you think? Like for Christians, as we're trying to retrain our theological imaginations, or figure out, you know, how can we start building a left, not just through historical figures, which is very important, but also through, you know, uh, our dispositions toward politics and toward each other and toward the church. Um, what what do you think uh, we should do? Like, are there particular people that are really helpful to read? Um, are there particular 
uh, like untapped or underexplored uh, territories of theology that we need to keep pressing and looking at. Um, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think that when it comes to changing a Christian's political imagination, the first thing is to, I think, expose and, and show the ways in which certain uh, certain political leaders have have really constrained what we think is possible. Um, that they have they have told us, um, starting I mean for a long time they've told us that like another another kind of world is not possible and sort of they've they've given Christians a box they've given even progressive Christians like this is the box that you can work in, um, and what that has usually meant has it's been that. Um, there, it's things can't really change politically. That you really, we can't really change the economy. And most of what we can do is maybe wish for more inclusion and maybe wish for more representation at the top. But this system of inequality, this sort of this war machine that we have in the United States, that that's just the way it is. And the best that we can do is sort of tinker with it and and avoid the its worst excess. I think the where we begin is by first showing people that that is a lie and that that's actually not working that that way of thinking like not only is it not helpful for the construction of a better type of world but it's actually not even uh practically feasible anymore because it's not winning you can't win elections you can't uh build a broad base of people who want to support you um if you keep your main message is that hey like i know the world sucks but like i'm not as bad as the next guy we're not bad we're not as bad as trump like you are not going to win something so i think i think that's the first thing and i think um i think the other thing is just realizing the way that if you actually look at the christian faith like if you look at like a concept like the kingdom of god like it it requires you to think that there is another kind of world as possible. You can't say like thy thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can't truly we pray that. That's part of you know the Lord's prayer that Christians pray. But you can't really believe that um, unless you actually believe that th- there there can be another uh, world, political world um, as well. Um, I think beyond that, um, in terms of not just historical figures or like looking thinking theologically or biblically i think there there are certain figures there are certain people today that are working i think two people that come to mind are reverend barber and, and linda sarsour um and reverend barber and i've gotten to sort of see both of them in different settings and and they i think are very much ama- amazing leaders like reverend barber um he used to be he used to be the leader of the naacp in north carolina um and he started the moral mondays movement to really push back against uh, really draconian policies being put by the Republican legislature um, over there in the state. Um, but he is somebody that has come out, and I think he's the closest embodiment that we have on a super, someone who has a really high profile, um, of someone who is who who is truly, truly, I think, left and progressive and embodies the spirit of King. Um, and I think with that, like I mentioned Linda Sarsora, because I think she also represents the future of what that the the future of, I think, Christ, of a Christian left. It cannot be monolithic. Like we will have to we will have to work with people who are not Christian. And, it, you know, it's not going to be like we can't replicate the mistake or we can't repeat the mistakes of the Christian right, which is to think that we think that solely on Christian terms, we can solve problems or solely on Christian terms. Like we can, we can actually like make sense of this country. Like 
hello, like this country is not, it's not going to be majority Christian anymore. That's, that's part of the Robert Jones's book, his, his thesis that he shows, uh, his research. Um, and so like the future of any Christian left will have to be pluralistic. It will have to be interfaith. Um, it will have to work with leaders of various movements. And so that's why I look at somebody like Reverend Barber and Linda Sarsour, and I think these are the types of leaders that I think they're, they're actually pushing against the Democratic Party. They're pushing against what political leaders have told religious leaders is like, this is what's possible. This is what, this is how much we can change. And they are starting to put the heat on and the pressure on the people who consider themselves politically liberal. Um, that reminds me of, uh, I guess a different, a different point that means the same thing, I guess. Uh, there's a Latin American philosopher named Santiago Castro Gomez, and he's like a, one of the decolonial guys. And, uh, I read one article by him, so I'm not like an expert or anything. <laughs> Anyways, he uh, has this really cool critique, I think, against um, uh, like people in the West, I guess, just generally, that uh, they think from like a zero point. They think that like you know their sort of their perspective is sort of like the um, the groundwork for everything. Like they're starting they're starting off from like a, a point of objectivity, whereas the rest of the world is coming at it from a different lens or whatever. Um, what's interesting about the the zero point thing though is he introduces this idea of plurality of knowledges uh into the equation where it's like uh actually like you know you don't have the zero point and you have to start listening to other people um and i think that taking like that kind of idea with what you just said and and what we know about the future of um the future of america like in your uh i think in your last article you said like by 2024 or something like uh white evangelicals won't be a majority so so figuring out how to start listening to other people that aren't just christian um and, and aren't just american aren't just like you know from the united states or from north america is going to be huge in like building that those future like left coalitions to to think of another world that could be possible P plural plural worlds plural understandings of uh of politics yeah i think that's exactly right that like it it may actually uh it, it may make us like ask the question, do we, if we need a Christian left, what kind of, what kind of left is it going to be? Is it going to kind of be this, this zero point Christian, it's going to be a mirror image of the Christian right, where it's this sort of totalizing project. And I, I don't think, I think that's why when I speak of the Christian left, I think it's a much more, <laughs> I don't know, I think it's a much more humble project because like there, there can't be this, this assumption that we're going to take power, we're going to take control yeah. of like the country, we're going to make it like what Christian left again? Like no, like, <laughs> it's not. That's why it's not the same as it can't. It's it's on. It's totally different terms. And and so I think um, part of it will be um, having to to work and partner with other people in different perspectives. And that's why I also think the same thing with socialism. I think with the the, the politics side of it is that um, I'm a big the sort of the camp that I fall in is I, re I really think that any, any true socialism needs to be democratic. It needs to come from the people and it needs to sort of, um, it, it can't be sort of a kind of socialism or progressive politics that just simply imposed uniformly on a large group of people who don't want it or who like have different viewpoints. I think that a true socialism has to take into account different uh, cultures, different viewpoints, different religions, different things. And, and I think what brings us together is that we all live on this planet together and we need water and we need 
you know, we need land to live. We 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 live on land. We 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 drink water. We we breathe the same air. We uh, go to school, and so there are certain needs, basic necessities that we have as human beings that I think we can come to sort of a general consensus that okay, we need to work for something together that makes sense. Um, but in terms of then how that is is um, how that's worked out culturally, or how that's worked out then in in specific instances, I think. It, people need to have input. It can't be sort of one thing. And so in that sense, like I, that's how I think of myself as a democratic socialist. Um, um, on that point, I don't know if you want to talk about this. And if you don't, it's totally cool. Um, but thinking about like, you know, the future of the left in America and, and, a, and a possible Christian left, and then also what you just said about, the de- about democratic socialism, uh, do you have anything you want to say about like socialist organizations that you want to work with or think that are, uh, like promising like are you a dsa member are you a member of some other party if, yeah i don't want to do this it's it's cool but no yeah and no, this is fine i'm a i'm a at large member of dsa and so i'm i just went to an initial meeting with uh with a new chapter that is starting on long island um and so i'm hoping that that it looks like it's going in a good direction i hope to get more involved um i think dsa democratic socialist of america i think it's a good um, organization. They're, they're at least the biggest, like the fastest growing socialist organization. What people don't know, and this may interest folks who, who are listening to this podcast, is that uh, DSA actually has some deep uh, religious roots, or at least like interactions with religion. And so um, Michael Harrington, who's uh, the founder, one of the, or I think the founder, one of the founders of DSA, uh, he he worked with, I think, um, with Kings of the Poor People's Campaign, um, there was some there was some interaction there, and then Norman Thomas, who I mentioned before, he was part of a sort of a previous group um, that I think was eventually subsumed under DSA, but he was part of the Socialist Party of America. There, and then Cornell West was, you know, one of the honorary chairs. So at least, like in terms of its like genetic legacy, DSA has. Uh, compared to, I guess, other leftist groups, has been more more open to religion, um, which is not something that all leftist or socialist groups are. If you take a super, I guess, orthodox Marxist approach, um, then like you, they tend to be very much more suspicious and not as open to people who are religious. I think being socialist, but at least in DSA's uh, DNA, they are much. They've been much more open. So I think. That organization, um, it's growing. I think it has some promise, and I think that because of its openness to religion, like that is that's a big potential. That's a big sort of um, it, it's an area in which they they have the potential to grow because of progress the number of uh, progressive Christians and and religious folks who are wanting to actually get politically involved and do things. Another group that I would suggest or that I would recommend looking checking out is Reparations of the Breach. And that is Reverend Barber's, I think that's his national organization, I think with also some other ministers. Um, and that that's a, th- those are people who I think are really, they're putting the heat on the Republicans and the de- Democratic Party for not being um, not being committed to policies that produce life holistically in terms of like healthcare, in terms of poverty, like, and and they have a very, I think it's a very clear and a strong commitment. Um, somebody else, Reverend Tracy Blackman, um, who's with the UCC, the United Church of Christ. Um, she's somebody that like recently, I think she was outside of Mitch McConnell's office and was like, you worship the God of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he was like, yes, I do. In fact, I'm going to the <laughs> temple right now. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I think you know that was awesome, and I think we need we need more people um, to be to be saying these types of things. And and but that, that I think these are circles in which uh, Christians can probably connect to other folks that are doing this type of work. Um, and we need people to also say that to the Democratic Party as well. I think it's very very important. I I am not a purist in the sense that like I I may hate the the Democratic Party, but like given what the scenario is in terms of like what are the condition what are the electoral conditions right now and what how can you win it's very hard for third parties to win or for independents to win and so i think we definitely have to ho- have like a multi-pronged approach where even if i think the democratic party is hopeless which i think it basically is uh, i can't i have to hold out hope that okay maybe there's like there's one candidate that I can support or I can support a, a grassroots insurgents that wants to sort of take it over and change it. Um, I also support those on the outside who are just doing non-electoral work and activism. I think that's also major key. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I uh, I appreciate that you have done a good job um, just in your response, like drawing together uh, a variety of um, uh organizations that aren't explicitly like left but also not explicitly not left or something it's like there's a lot of different fronts on which uh the struggle for liberation is taking place and uh yeah i i think it's very important to kind of i don't know ward off those uh siloing um tendencies that you know at least that i definitely have (laughs) on the left to be like oh these people don't care about private property so i guess uh they're garbage like i'm not interested (laughs) um like i don't know maybe whatever if someone wants to get rid of prisons and they like aren't worried about private property that's fine i guess um yeah, so I appreciate that corrective. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking also, uh, so against my better judgment, I argue a lot on the internet with uh, like radical traditional Catholics. Uh, radical in the negative sense, like they're, uh, you know, I don't know. Rad trans. Whatever. Like yeah, rad trans. orthodoxy or? Uh, like worse than that. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's weird because a lot of them take themselves to be uh, on the Christian left or whatever because the whole shtick is that they're trying to follow Catholic social teaching to the letter. Um, and, you know, surprise, Catholic social teaching is not the uh, party um, documents of uh, the Democratic Party. So they're like, well, we must be on the left. Um, <laughs> but uh, the weird thing about that is they're so allergic to any actual leftist uh, group or organization or people in general. Uh, it's the strangest thing. And it all hinges on this uh, this idea that if you're not absolutely Christian on every single score, then, you know, we're not going to get ourselves dirty by, like, hanging out with you and doing whatever we're going to do. And so, I mean, on the bright side, there are so few of them that they'll never do anything in this world because there's, like, ten of them on the internet uh, arguing with each other and with me, apparently. Uh, but on the uh, on the downside, I think that actually exhibits the extreme form of uh, politics a lot of Christians implicitly have um, that you, we've been kind of dancing around in this whole conversation about, you know, having this anxiety about really building the coalitions you would have to build, which means you know, finding people who are friendly to Christians, which is one thing that Matt and I are trying to do here, you know, talking to people from the PSL and the DSA, etc. Um, and then on the other hand, like, not worrying about whether or not people care that you're a Christian and just sort of, you know, getting involved because you, you should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that um, in terms of... Oh, sorry, I don't know if you have a question from that. No, it was just a, a thing that if it if it sparks something for you, uh, go go for it. If it doesn't, then uh, leave it yeah, on the table. No, I I don't. I just yeah. I don't. I don't know too. I'm not as familiar with this part. Is going to be cut out. I don't know as much about those 
those those Catholic groups. So, um, but I'm sorry that you have to debate. <laughs> I don't have to, and no one should feel sorry for me. It's a uh, it's yeah. <laughs> it's t- complete masochism. Uh, yeah, I'm like I know that I'm an addict because like I say that I could stop at any time, but I don't. So, oh, I think I have a response. So maybe you can include this. Um, yeah, I think that that's that just reflects the problem of like we have to work with a lot of people. You have to build a really broad coalition. Obviously, I think it's important um, to know what your own commitments are and what sort of what you're not willing to compromise. And that's that's the problem with the Democratic Party, that it, it stands for everything and nothing at the same time. It sort of like <laughs> as it, it assumed that demographically it was going to automatically win just like this large coalition of like capitalists, people of color, queer people, southern, like southern worker, like it was just going to kind of win all these people except like the Republican base. Um, but it actually didn't. Um, because like the thing is, if you don't actually stand for something, um, you don't, um, then then people start to not really trust you. So there's this balance. There's a sort of this balance that needs yeah. to take place between building a broad coalition, but having certain commitments that you are going to take strong stands for, you're not going to back, you're not going to walk away from. I think the new the new labor party or I shouldn't say the new labor party because that that has its own political its own historical baggage the labor party under Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> um, <laughs> I think is a good example of sort of of a, of a of a political group of a political party that has has taken a good direction and, and remember that Jeremy Corbyn the only reason why he's now the leader of the party is because I think they opened up their party to for members to have more of a say in terms of who the leader is if it was to if it was up to most of the MPs and the leadership of the Labour Party itself they would have had somebody like in in the Tony Blair camp <laughs> to still be headed in and that would have been disastrous and so like that, that organization, that political party has taken a really, really good direction, but it took, it took, it took a lot of efforts from the bottom up, a lot of effort from the bottom up in terms of people changing that. And so I think here with any party uh, or with any political organization, with any group, like it will have to take, it will have to take sort of a very deep democracy and push from the bottom um, for it to change. Go figure. Like people uh, actually want to make their lives better and like, we'll vote for it. Like how surprising. <laughs> uh so last in our last episode with um with drew we were talking a little bit about the challenges of building a coalition on the left within the left so it's a problem you know for for christians but it's also a problem for the left that's trying to kind of build itself um this year and (laughs) especially you know in the wake of donald trump uh, and one thing that we kind of were uh, batting back and forth was like, um, there seems to be a real confusion about uh, where, um, like trying trying to name a primary site of struggle on the one hand, that's what some people want to do, and then uh, emphasizing the need to kind of come at uh, a variety of issues uh, from a variety of angles and not having the need to name that primary site of struggle. So the big sort of stage on which this uh is playing out i think um is with publications like jacobin right which is easy to pick on because they've basically made it explicit that they're like we think that class is the thing that's the thing sorry like all the rest of the things are important things but they're epiphenomena of class and that's what we think is the most effective strategy which i find so absurd and like very hard to (laughs) to stomach uh and it seems to me like 
it's a real challenge it for the left moving forward of like is the left going to be capable of taking up these other kinds of struggles and not sidelining them in the interest of class or something like that um so what do you think like it seems to me uh based on the first half of our conversation you know evangelicalism and just christianity in general has a race problem in the u.s uh that's motivating all these politics of resentment um but also uh the left has a race problem that it's kind of blind to some of the issues that are being challenged uh in this political climate what do you think about that yeah i think that the left definitely have broadly speaking there, there is a race problem, but I have to be careful here because I, the the center also has a race problem. I think everybody has a, everybody, sure. <laughs> everybody has a problem. What what's happening is that um, I think what we need is basically true intersect a true intersectional approach um, in the way that uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and other Black feminist writers have been talking about for decades. The problem is is that that language or that sort of or that the idea of intersectionality has been co-opted by neoliberals who use the idea of diversity to basically i don't know to argue that the issue is basically representation and it's not like the economy or it's like not you know uh, uh elitism or or sort of yeah it's not it's not um and and, and so because certain groups um, have co-opted that language, and then now you then you have leftists who sort of react to that and say, well, the problem is identity politics. Like the problem is intersectionality. Like what we need is to go back to focusing on the true issue, which is class and which is capitalism, and not get confused and just understand that these issues of diversity or sexuality or others are just like all stemming from. And I think that. Um, yeah, I, for me, that's my that's my thinking of it. That's my approach. Like in short, I think that we need to listen to Black feminists. I I, I just think we need to read them and, and listen to them. And I, I think uh, for me, I've I've been critical of the language of intersectionality more in the way that it's been co-opted, but I don't think in the way that it's actually. If you look at the way it was initially articulated, um, and if you think of people like somebody like Angela Davis, like I mean, these are these are Black feminists who. Uh, um, Black feminist thinkers who are intersectional, but also anti-capitalist, explicitly anti-capitalist, involved in, in activism throughout her life, imprisoned, um, all sorts of stuff. And so I think there, there are there are there are ways to sort of cut through it. But right now, I think we're almost stuck within these two very sort of unfortunate um, these unfortunate routes, which I think are are not helping us when it comes to like race and the left and and so for for me uh there needs to be a, a way to to understand that uh folks people from other cultures and from different countries people who are not white and who are not european will talk about will will bring perspectives that are might be slightly different than marx so i think one this is the important thing about marx i think it's important to have uh, an open kind of Marxism and a heterodox kind of form of Marxism in which like there are some like Mark, there are certain things that are true be because capital has expanded and has sort of gone global. There are certain realities that are true everywhere or are, be are becoming true everywhere. But then that doesn't mean at the same time that everything is sort of can be collapsed to this sort of universal notion of class without attending to sort of the this particular context, like the local struggles, the local cultures. And also even when it comes to thinking about the future, for example, like think about the Zapatistas in Mexico, like they want a particular kind of future. 
Um, when you look at other Marxist-Leninist groups, like they, it doesn't look like what the Zapatistas are exactly are doing. They're doing something a little bit different. So for me, like it's important to understand that the end point, the end point, it can we can have multiple futures. It's sort of what Matt was saying before, right? Like another world is possible. Like another plural, another world, like other worlds are possible. <laughs> so I think when it comes to the issue of race. Part of it is that's part of the issue is that there's sort of there's this desire to limit and to control sort of what how the analysis to control the analysis to to what goes in and it just like it just needs to be a lot less eurocentric i think um in its approach um yeah um well daniel thanks for thanks a lot for coming on the podcast um yeah like when we were thinking about doing this podcast you were one of the people on our our first list i was like we've got to find a way to get daniel on here at some point um and i'm really glad i know you've had like a crazy summer full of a lot of stuff (laughs) happening so it means a lot that you carved out some time to to chat with us uh oh i wanted to say uh i was thinking about where i first knew you and i think i remember uh the first time i met you was coincidentally at calvin college i was there for the book release of the like shane claiborne common prayer book thing and uh, you were like the only person that talked to us for a significant amount of time. So uh, we were we were uh, visitors from Cornerstone, the more more evangelical school in Grand Rapids than Calvin. So, uh, that's like that's a so very funny it's, you're, 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 it's so embarrassing to tell me I met you at a Shane Claiborne doctor. <laughs> I know. I feel the same way. That's why. That's why I bring it up. It's like the. It's a very good uh, like preface actually to this whole conversation. I just should have said it at the beginning, but uh, yeah. So no, like thanks for. Two thousand tens Christian thing to do. Yeah. I was at a Shane yeah. Claiborne book release, and uh... <laughs> yeah. I, I remember Dean. I remember I went to to talk to Dean because I heard that there was this group of of sort of dis, dissident philosophy students at at uh, at Cornerstone. Uh, wait, is it Cornerstone, right? Yeah, that's right. Right, and it was like a di- dissident group of like philosophy students at Cornerstone, and there were like some of them were thinking of maybe transferring, or they were, they were causing a lot of issues. For their for the school, but there was this guy named Bonzo who I think was like radicalizing you guys. So like for me, I was just like I was a philosophy major at Calvin, and I just wanted to be in solidarity with the other students who are also suffering. I'm like I like we should maybe form like an international like a small well it's not really international it's a Grand Rapids international (laughs) (laughs) philosophy dissident students uh, under like under Christian philosophy rule. Yeah, the solidarity continues for sure. <laughs> Maybe that's a good place to end. Did you get did you get that the recording? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all there, man. We got it. <laughs> yeah. But um but yeah, thank you guys. I, I had a great time. Yeah. Me too. This is good. Yeah, good luck in uh, Long Island. Look forward to more of your more of your writing. Yeah, thank you, sure. thank you. Yeah, and I hope to. I hope this is not my last visit. <laughs> no way. We'll have you back for sure. Yeah, anytime you want, man. Thanks for the Magnificast. Uh, super cool to have Daniel Camacho on. That was uh, definitely a highlight of, of the podcast experience for us. Uh, <laughs> next week, Matt Sittman is going to be on talking about, I think, a lot of similar themes, but like different because he's a different person. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing about people is that they're not the same. Uh, yeah, uh, if you some communist want... you are, am I right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, we're also still doing the Virilio reading group. We had the first meeting last week, and it was really fun and good. And like five or six people joined the conversation, and it was really good. I don't know. I liked what happened. 
if you want to get in on it, you still can. Um, just uh, give us a dollar on Patreon, and uh, all of our Virilia expertise can be yours. Um, <laughs> that's all it's worth, actually. That's one, actually one American one, dollar. One American dollar, yeah. Uh, not Canadian dollar. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right. I'm going to stop recording. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.